0: Welcome back to Dear Baseball God. This is episode 26. We have a great guest this weekend, one of my former teammates, Bobby Stevens. Bobby, what's going on, man? Doing good. How are you? Doing well. So Bobby here, uh, he and I played together, what was it, 2014, right? And then you were... And then we were opponents in the same league, in the Atlantic League. But Bobby was drafted by the Orioles in the 16th round of the 2008 draft, a uh, Northern Illinois University Husky. And then over seven professional seasons is a 247 lifetime average and spent time with the Orioles Braves, Somerset Patriots, Camden River Sharks, and the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. And now Bobby's hanging out in Chicago, running a very successful travel baseball organization called the uh, Windy City Dugout and you guys just got a new facility, right?
1: Yep, it's about to open here at the end of the month.
0: So. Tell me about your new place. Um, that's a big, a, an exciting day. I remember our day back then, you know, four years ago with Warbird. But so you got your keys, like tell me about it.
1: It is really exciting. I think it's more exciting for the kids. Uh, honestly, we've been a uh, we've been an organization for a little while now, but kind of bounced around, used other people's facilities, um, use temporary spaces. So to have something to kind of call our own, uh, a place where people go and they kind of identify. You know this facility is associated with windy city baseball is is only going to help and i think it's it's exciting for a lot of the kids to to have a a home
0: yeah well it's one of those things i don't think people realize exactly how much overhead is involved in having a baseball academy and just how how crazy and expensive and scary that is so what did you guys do so first of all you have 16 teams right 16. and how many of those are baseball and how many are softball
1: We've got 13 baseball and three softball.
0: You started your first team back when?
1: So the first Windy City team actually started when I was in high school. So we're talking 2005. And at the onset of it, it was the dad had a son who knew my dad wanted to start some kind of travel baseball, kind of grew out of the house ball. So after getting drafted in 2008, I went to work training these teams. So we had teams from nine all the way to through 14 and then you kind of get towards the tail end of your career. And so I'm sure kind of how you were and how a lot of baseball players were wondering what you're going to do in life. And it was at, it was at that point we decided, or at least I decided that I was going to take it up through high school where I think like the, you know, travel ball starts to get serious. Baseball starts to get serious. You kind of get a, a different quality of athlete at 15 You So, in 2015, when I came back from Europe, I was playing in Europe, uh, had tryouts for the following year's uh, 15 U team. So this will be year three of high school baseball for us, and probably about year 13 of youth baseball.:
0: Okay, so got 15 well, so 2005 to 2017, so it's 13 years. How has it changed since then? So you played for them back in the day. Uh, And now you're running it. So what was the complexion like of baseball back then? And and how's it different now?
1: Wow. I would say everybody and their mother can have a travel baseball team now. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, uh, that's might be an understatement back, back in high school when, when I was playing and kind of when Windy city started out there were, I can, I can almost name the teams we used to play and the teams we used to see in tournaments because there were only a handful of them and little league and house baseball were still very much prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'd have a hard time finding a, a house league or a little league team outside of, you know, the, the handful of parks that still participate in the little league world series to, to field a competitive team. So it's, it's changed a lot and it's, it's become quite the business aspect both from teams and tournaments and uh equipment and all that stuff so uh, the landscape has changed and it's it's only getting worse it seems like
0: <laughs> yeah I was having a a conversation with a dad the other day uh, a guy from New York and he was saying how he is a he, he coaches a 13U team and they're playing all 6090 at 13U and he was just saying how hard it is and how kids just want to quit and it's it's hurting the long-term career prospects of a lot of these players because like to me that just that's baffling that you'd have 13 youth players playing at the 60 90 level like i just it blows my mind because the game is and, so different yeah. when the field's that big
1: in and it's you know i i can speak from from experience and myself we're playing up with some kids where yeah you've got your top couple kids on the team that at 13 you 60 90 would be no problem for them but you really got to look at, I mean, you're not, if you've got a team that's top to bottom 60-90, I mean, you're working with some serious athletes. Because at travel baseball, with how watered down it is, I would, you know, the bottom half of your roster cannot make that throw across a diamond. No, or, from, or from the pitcher's mound. I mean, you said the, the tra- time magazine had a travel, a, what was he, a 12-year-old travel baseball player on the cover a couple weeks ago. I only, knew, I only know this because one of, our, one of my old teammates is this hitting coach out in Philadelphia, uh, Dan Hennigan, former Atlantic player. Oh, leader. yeah,
0: I know Dan, yeah.
1: So he's got, he, he gives one-on-one lessons to this kid who's on the cover of Time magazine, the, a magazine that profiles presidents and world leaders, and there's a 10-year-old playing youth travel baseball. That's, uh, that's insane to me.
0: But why, why was he on the cover?
1: Uh, because of how how much of a business is... I think the article based around the father spending upwards of $30,000 a year on travel baseball. What? So the kid... How do you spend
0: spend that much money? That's $100 a day. The
1: kid lives in New Jersey, plays on a team in Florida and in California. He's on the roster of those two teams. I I don't even know how you would find a team. I don't know if I could find a team, a men's league team to play on out there. I don't know how a 10-year-old finds a team to play travel baseball with out in California and in Florida when he lives in the, the Northeast. But that's, uh, that was basically the premise of the article and it's, it's insane. It's crazy. I, I don't know how you justify $30,000 on youth baseball.
0: Well, maybe he makes crazy millions of dollars and $30,000 to him is like $300 to normal people. Uh, I but was, even that, I, lo- uh, I love terrible. to be in his shoes. Yeah. Right. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't get it. I mean, it, it's, and, and you know, I were just talking off, I always say off camera, but off, uh, we're actually not on camera, we're on just audio. But, you know, the idea that you have to spend 1000s and 1000s and 1000s of dollars to get all this exposure. I mean, unfortunately, what you do have to spend on now is training, because everyone does lessons. So all these kids are accelerated in their, you know, their learning process. Like I didn't, I did like three lessons in my whole career. Cause like, they just like weren't a thing back in 2002 or whatever, when I was a kid and, uh, yeah, you know, so not. now you like have to spend that money or your kid gets left behind a little bit, you know, and some of them figure it out, but you know, you don't want to be just in that situation where, you know, I was at a conference this last week and some of the older guys were talking about how like back in the day, you know, all the players were just around and they just like the good ones figured it out. And the guys that weren't that good, didn't figure it out. You either figured it out or you didn't, you were like, yeah naturally became good at baseball or you weren't which is crazy but that really was how it was so now you can get nur- that was almost, nurtured along yeah. you know
1: that was almost how we were i i it, would it think. was I how mean, we it,
0: were for the most part yeah
1: i mean when you play multiple sports i mean i didn't pick up a bat in high school i mean other than my junior and senior year i was picking up a bat when high school tryouts started so and speak, you were coming right from basketball
0: so speak to that so you obviously like everyone loves to tout you know, every time Bryce Harper hits a home run, or every time Aaron Judge does something cool, they're like, oh, look at that. Three-sport athlete in high school. See, kids, you should play all three sports. Speak that's a
1: little such, bit uh, on that. That's so misleading to me because it's, you can play three sports and be horrible at all of them. Some, if you're a freak athlete, you're going to be a freak athlete. So to me, it doesn't make, you know, I understand the argument of, Three sport athlete, multi sport athlete. You know, you're training different muscles. You're staying diverse. You're staying versatile. But some of these kids, if they're not training all year round for one specific sport, they're going to get passed by by the kids that are just naturally more gifted athletically. Yeah. Because the athletically gifted kid is going to pick up the swing I'm teaching them in two weeks, whereas the kid who's not as athletically gifted is going to take two months. So, yeah, I think you got to you know perspective on the argument is is how good of an athlete are you working with if he's you know if he can roll from one sport to the other and he's just you know bigger faster stronger than everybody yeah by all means play play every sport to to the nth degree but if i've got you know i've got the the kid who's you know 11th in the rotation in basketball and he's on you know he's on punt team for football but maybe he shows a little bit of promise in baseball, well, then that's a kid I might pull aside and say, look, this needs to be your full time gig if you have any desire to play a sport in college. Yeah. And Cause you're just a punching are So basically a punching bag for practice for the other two sports.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I was talking to one parent. I can't remember where they were from, but they're from a bigger area where like we were just kind of comparing and contrasting. You know my business in Bloomington, you know, obviously it's a smaller town, it's hundred thirty thousand people, so it's not tiny, but you know, we're not a metro area. And I was explaining how my travel organization actually this was this was Mike Reinhardt Mike Reinald I was talking to talking to, but so he was in, he's up in Boston, he was just talking about how like kids up there, because they're in this big metro area it's not even as much an issue of them playing three sports because they're not going to make three sports. Like, you have to be a freak to make the basketball team, the football team, and the baseball team. Like, they're so big that guys get cut. Um, Down in, you know, where I'm from, there's all these small towns, all these small schools where you're going to play all three sports just because there's not that many good players. And so most of the kids who are decent athletes at any sport are going to be decent at all three sports, you know? So there's, like, not even that you don't get whittled down naturally. You know, you might want to yeah. play basketball in Arizona, but there's too many good kids in Phoenix and you're just not going to make the team, so you get to focus, you kind of get to focus on baseball or whatever your other sport is.
1: Yeah, and that's some that's part of the high school selection process now that I'm like we work with a high school up here um as a feeder program essentially and you know when I talk to kids about going to high school and where they want to go and you know, they kind of give their answers. Well, I'd like to go to this place because they have a good football program or they have a good, you know, basketball program. And then it's the next question is, well, can you make that team? And if you like the sport that much, are you going to go somewhere where they're actually, going to, you know, give you the opportunity to play? So it's, it's tough when you're in a, like, obviously up in Chicago here, there's no shortage of youth athletes or opportunities to play multiple sports, but You know even as we talk about the big three sports of your football basketball baseball players in high school uh you know we've i know our team's got we have a ton of wrestlers and i have a ton of soccer players Kids that just you know they like being on the field they like doing other things which is great also makes it very tough for a program like mine to do fall ball which i don't know if you guys are doing fall ball down there but up here fall ball is is quite prevalent for uh especially for high school baseball
0: yeah, no, I I hate fall ball, I think. Well, I, I always hated <laughs> it as a kid. I don't know why. It's just like when the air smelled cold. Not that you could smell temperature, but I just hated fall ball. I don't know why. And obviously now with all like the research on pitching injuries, it's just probably not a good idea in general. And I think it's tough to – and granted, kids don't pitch that much. So we do have some kids that play fall ball. They don't play it for the Warburg Senators brand, but they just play fall ball for somewhere else in the area. And they don't really pitch that much if they pitch at all so it's not the end of the world but you know for like for a position player i think that's fine if you really want to do it but the pitching thing is tough because you might have guys that pitch all spring all summer and then they're still pitching in the fall it's like let's just rest and let you recover and then start back up and build you for next year
1: right some at some point you gotta i mean you know better and better than most hit the weight room yeah only you only you only throw seventy four for so long. I need you to put on some weight. Fall's <laughs> the time to do it.
0: So, one of the things that I've been getting better at is talking with parents, just communicating. Um, you know, you've been doing this longer than I have. So, what are some of the challenges that I am sure you've had to grow a lot uh, as far as just like your communication style and dealing with parents and coaches and um, players, and like when your coaches maybe don't may they fall short of your organization's standards? I mean, how do you, how have you handled all that stuff growing up in your organization?
1: Uh, it's, it's evolved. It's definitely evolved. You know, it's young as a younger man, it was, you know, I was very quick, quick judgment, you know, quick reaction to anything related to whether it be at practice, parents, emails. I was quick to, and, mo- and usually hotheaded in, in regards to, to my responses. And then you, you know, as you get older, you step back, you realize like that it's, you're talking to people who it's their children and their money. And that's where, you know, you try and step back and kind of play devil's advocate for yourself. Um, don't get me wrong. There's always the parents that, you know, are going to try and raise an issue or cause an issue, whether you're, trying to do right by their kids or not, but sometimes there's a lack of communication or a misinterpretation of what, you know, especially through email now, which is how I communicate most everything to our teams. Um, You definitely, you have to be, you kind of have to have that understanding that some people, you know, need need the extra explanation, you know, need, need you to take a step back and kind of explain to them what or why something's happening but i do have a rule with my kids and it's always you know i tell them the first day of practice is that you know i don't want to hear from your parents about playing time and um anything else regarding on the field i always you know not that not that they can't take an interest but you know if a kid has a problem with playing time or if he has an issue or he wants to know how to get better i always kind of push them to grow up a little bit and make them come to us first or come to the coach first. And I kind of, I give it a little bit of a pro ball mentality. You know, I don't let the kids call me coach. Uh, I make them call me by my first name, which is something you kind of learn, right? When you get to get to pro ball, my first year come from college, you call your college coach coach and you call the assistant coaches coach. And when you get to pro ball, it's, you know, I, the closest I came to calling somebody coach was I called the manager, skip. So I try and give it that feel, you know, you try and treat the kids like adults. Hopefully they, you know, they, they latch on and they grow up a little bit. And when they've got an issue, they come to you as opposed to getting that email from, from mom asking why, uh, you know, Johnny pitched four innings and he should have pitched
0: all six. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And sometimes, you know, a, a genuine, like, why isn't, why isn't he still in the game turns into like something a little more malicious where they let it grow and, I mean, everyone I think is guilty of that at times where you see someone do something that you don't like and you're like, why is that guy doing that? Like he 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 should know better. He should know that that pisses me off. Blah, blah, blah. And and if you actually go up and talk to him often, he's like, oh, no, I like I did it for this reason. And, you know, I didn't I certainly didn't mean to cause any harm. It's easy for everybody to just like jump to conclusions about you need to just ruminate on it why isn't little Johnny playing? He should, you know, and there's probably a valid reason. So I think just that communic- line of communication is really important. And, it's, there's, and I, there's been get growing it from, pains, yeah.
1: Yeah, and you get it from the parents, too, that, you know, I talk, I'm very friendly with a lot of parents. And, uh, you know, they can, when they tell you stories about other coaches, it's their son gets taken out. And they're the ones, it's not just that he got taken out. It's that they're going to stew down the line, you know, angry about it for the next two hours until they confront you after the game or until they write you an email. So it's not just, uh, Johnny got taken out. Let's have a discussion about it. It's Johnny got taken out. I'm going to sit here and be mad and watch the rest of the game. And Joey that got put in for Johnny, you know, is making errors and now it's now it's Joey's not even good enough to play over Johnny. And it becomes, it just manifests itself into a, Into like a height, almost a heightened anger, because there really is no, there's no immediate explanation or response as to why something's happening on the field. You know, as a coach, when you're coaching a youth team, you know sometimes you're just trying to get kids playing time, uh, and parents aren't seeing that, you know, because they're sitting down the side and kind of, you know, talking amongst themselves, and then it becomes almost like a coup.
0: Yeah. So do you feel like your playing career helped you? learn all that like learn how to communicate with teammates and coaches and I mean how do you feel like your career influenced your communication style um so I, I, would I knew say, you obviously as like a f- kind of don't don't get Bobby fired up kind of dude right
1: yeah I would say I you know intense would be a good word I suppose um to describe a like a playing style and a. a I can remember that all the way back from when I was younger too though, where it's like on the field, you know, baseball related or sports related in general, it was, I was very fired up, um, competitive in nature. But I think you learn as, especially playing professionally, I mean that you can appreciate the different walks of life you come across and from all different parts of the world, you know, from Latin players to. Played, I played in Europe with guys who the language barrier was almost it was literally a wall. I, they didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any of their language. You play with guys um, from the Far East that are, you know, Japanese, Taiwanese, Korean that that can't communicate with you. So you kind of you know, especially seeing some of the struggles those guys have where they come to a foreign place and, and basically get dropped here and said. You know figure it out you kind of learn uh you learn a different couple styles of styles and you know different styles of communication, but at the same time like you said i got don't gotta keep that competitive fire a little bit
0: yeah do you have any uh you want to share any any stories do you have any uh <laughs> obviously i, I know I, I know of your stories, Robert but we've got a few stories
1: um give me one so I think you know a one that pops out to me is a confrontation I had, and this uh, should preface this by saying this is not something that would happen in affiliated baseball, but um, circumstances when you're in independent baseball, you've got player coaches, you've got, you've got a lot of different working parts, you know, independent baseball is a lot of word of mouth. So guys come and go based on recommendations of players. Guys get released from their organization. I know I've done it where guys got released from the Orioles or the Braves or friends of mine in affiliated ball. Where I mentioned to the manager or the guy making decisions, you know, hey, this guy can help us. So this guy can, you know, he could play here. And sometimes the repercussions of that are you're really throwing some one of your own teammates on, under the bus. And that uh, that that escalated. That escalated quite nicely in a uh in a locker room argument uh I was in one time because you know you you feel like you are teammates with with people but sometimes their titles uh their titles get in the way and you get you get guys that are making decisions based on your career you know nothing nothing malicious or personal you hope but you know when at the end of the day, you kind of got to look out for number one, especially in baseball. You know, it's sometimes a good guy gets left behind if you're trying to do something for somebody else. So when someone's kind of taking a poke at your career or maybe trying to bring somebody in to take a spot that you thought, you know, a space you occupied essentially in the locker room, that's, uh, I would say uh fist of cuffs has been known to happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in a slightly more specific tone, you, uh, you're playing for a team who had a pitching coach, uh, slash pitcher. And he was often sort of making player personnel decisions out loud in front of other people. Just like, just as if you're talking at the dinner table about, yeah, you know, mom, mom hasn't been cooking real well. So, you know, we might need a new, (laughs) we might need a new head of household. (laughs) You know, I'm right here. Right. Yeah. So yeah,
1: that's, uh, that, that's basically the, that was basically the situation. You know, we had a, we had a pitching coach who also was assistant personnel director and which is fine. You know, that's yeah, obviously happens. that happens in independent ball and you get it and guys, you know, come and go all the time. It's just the, the manner, the manner in which you, you talk about it openly to other guys. You know, it's, I don't find it appropriate to talk about someone else's career, whether I'm making the decisions or not. Um, so I, you know, so you don't appreciate when someone's talking about your career potentially, even in a, even in a roundabout way, where you know they're kind of referencing you and they think they've got some kind of power. At the, you said that uh, I guess that that intensity will come out.
0: <laughs> well I you said there's your dad? Other, your dad was the toughest situations. guy on the on the block in Chicago, right? So you have to yeah, uphold, you have you, to uphold uh, the, the Stevens family shield.
1: Yeah, you don't you, you don't I have. I, Honestly, I've never heard from him personally, but uh, that's that's the the word on the street from from many people that knew my dad growing up. It was you know you know who to mess with and you know who not to. There you go. There's other situations though, not even related to um, even a something of that nature. Uh, you know, I played with a player who with the Orioles who actually came out as gay in a major um a major magazine on the east coast and this was this was a few years after he had stopped playing and you know we we caught wind of the article and i read it and uh at the time i was locker mates with him i you know he was his locker was right next to mine i was friends with him um and you get guys in the locker room i mean there's you get 30 guys in a room there's gonna be some you know, there's going to be some words thrown around that are probably not all that friendly towards gay people or uh, homosexuals. And I can only imagine how uncomfortable it might have been at some points in the locker room with, you know, s- some of the conversations guys would have would just be outrageous. And I don't think I can share any of those here, but nah. you know as well as I do. I mean, there's words that get thrown around and, Being a locker mate with them, you know, I I can remember one specific time where somebody, we were actually talking about having a gay teammate in the locker room, and there was a small faction of the locker room, you know, a couple, two, three guys that were, would never, you know, very adamant, would never play with a gay guy, and this was, um, you know, as myself and a few of the other guys had already kind of uh, questioned, you know, my locker mate being gay or not, kind of amongst each other, you could kind of see him perk up. You could see him, you know, question question those those guys, you know, why, like, what, what would it matter to you? And, you know, a couple of us try and lighten the mood a little bit, crack a few jokes, but it, you step, you know, a few years later, you know, after the fact, it's, that had to be a tough situation and, on, and then on that same team, surprisingly enough, we had a staff member who came out as came out as gay, gay after the fact. So I can only imagine that, you know, that the dynamic there. And, you know, we can get into plenty of stories about what gets tossed around in the locker room. But just the
0: and what was the role the of the staff crisis. member trainer? Wow, that's got to be trainers get worn out more than worn anyone. right. My God! Even if you're like the, the nicest, most upstanding guy or girl, well, more so for the guys, the team just uses them as a punching bag, you know. And if they don't have oh, that like great. easy personality, we're like ah oh, ha ha ha. Like I mean, they'll wear you out for everything, like the khakis you're wearing, just like everything. And the guys that survive that job, you know, are just really light-hearted and take it for what it is, and. But, gosh, it can be ruthless against a trainer sometimes. It's a, t- it's a tough job. So for him, I, don't know how he did I can't it. imagine that's got to be – had to been brutal.
1: I'm still friends with him to, you know, keep in touch every once in a while, and I, I'll, I won't bring it up, you know, some of those conversations in the clubhouse. But I can uh, – I got to imagine he was uh, – he probably getting pretty fired up behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, and, you know, just athletic trainers in general – it's such an it's like an unsung hero of a job because they get worn out by the players and obviously like so speaking back to Dan at Camden you know our trainer there Dan was a great yeah. guy and he really cared about everyone and I think everyone really cared about him but we also wore him out <laughs> I mean he uh, wore, he wore so many jokes but he just you know rolled with it and laughed it off and gave guys crap back and um but man if you like if you don't have that personality because like for me in, co- in college, I had a bunch of upperclassmen I was a freshman who just gave me just tons of crap and I did not handle it well because I was 18, 19 and I got combative about it and I'd get in their face and that was exactly what they wanted. Like They wanted to get a rise out of me and I gave it to them. And as I got like older and wiser, I just started to like laugh it off and you realize just how important that is to develop that skill where you don't let things get under your skin because even then even like later on you can it there can only be somebody who just gets under your skin and then it just festers and it becomes an issue you know or a shouting match or whatever yeah trainers are saints they're those guys those guys are saints underpaid underappreciated yeah it's a it's a tough gig definitely but i remember obviously in uh i think it was 2014 were you there uh i'm not gonna mention his name but We had a teammate who played in the big leagues who was an insane person. I mean, just like certifiably insane, like wore a horse head, one of those rubber horse head masks all the time. (laughs) And uh, on one level, like he was, he really cared about his teammates and he really wanted to win. And there was like a part of him that was a really good guy. But there was another part of him that just dominated every conversation that brought people down when we lost, that, you know, put blame on others when they didn't play well and was just kind of psychotic, and I couldn't get him out from under my skin. I just could not, and it was impacting me just, like, personally and, like, on the field, just being in the bullpen with him. And it was, you know, this was me at 28, and I felt like I was pretty pretty easygoing and had wised up a lot of years ago. Right. But I could not get him out from under my skin. And it finally boiled over because I gave up a walk-off home run against Somerset, which was at the tail end of a long slump, and I was just I was just fuming after the game. And then we had an overnight bus ride to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So we got in there at like 3 a.m. And at that point, in the on the bus ride, he had drunk like most of the bottle of vodka, and (laughs) decided to decided to have a team meeting so he ushered. he got the coaches he said hey coaches like get off the bus i'm going to talk to the team and he was certainly not a leader on the team but he gets up takes the uh the mic and he starts with if you're not pissed off about the way that this last series went and i just lost it like i saw red and i got up and i like marched down the front of the bus i'm like i'm getting off this bus and we were like chest to chest and this guy was six five two sixty Yep. And I was just absolutely as furious as I can remember me ever being. And I just was sitting there just with my like fists clenched and a bunch of my buddies from the bullpen like came up behind me and I like felt them stand behind me. But I just wanted I just wanted to hit him so bad. And I was just standing there looking him in the eyes, like looking up at him, visualizing me just punching him in the face I'm like if I hit him hard enough he'll go down the bus steps and then hopefully he won't get back up because if, if he gets back up I'm not going to live through the night <laughs> but <if> I <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I can hit him hard enough that he won't get back up and it didn't come to that because I knew the consequences of that like I'd have been released like he'd have been like we'd all have been released and so it didn't come to that but it was a shouting match we were like umpire like chest to chest like nose to nose like shouting at each other and like, yeah, I think you think you're mature enough point. To, to get away from that stuff, but sometimes you just can't. And I was kind of disappointed in myself and all that, but I was just so, it was just the wrong person at the wrong time, you know, and it was a, a big confluence of factors and yeah.
1: Yeah. I can, uh, that, that last point you made, you know, it's, you gotta kind of think about your career and, uh, and everything else. That that would the repercussions of what would you what you would do because I can I can remember vividly towards the tail end of the season with the Orioles, um, guy on first, I'm up to plate and I get the hit and run and it was about it had to be the tenth time I've gotten the hit and run with this kid on first base and I do my job I swing ball you know forty feet off the plate nowhere close to hitting it and he doesn't run and. This he's now in the big leagues. I'm pre, He had been in the big leagues for about three, four years, maybe even longer. And I, lo, like, come into the dugout, and I'm being held back by had to be half the team. I mean, there was. I at that point, it didn't even matter that I had a job. I was I was gonna make sure that this kid never saw the light of day again. And you just get that rage, that fit of rage, and. You know, that situation felt personal um, on a few different fronts because we both we both played middle infield, and, you know, it was kind of a, when you miss a hit and run sign, you really don't, you, as the runner, you know, what what are your consequences? You just kind of stay at first base. But as a hitter, you know, you're putting yourself in the hole. So I can remember multiple times in that dugout that you're kind of getting into it with them not doing something like that, and you just towards the end of the long season, you know, baseball is a long season and you spend enough time with some guys, you know, family or friends, six months in, uh, in confined space will really make you want to tear somebody's head off.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, struggling, it makes it hard too. I remember, I don't think you play with him, but Carlos Guzman, did you, did you play with Carlos? I didn't. I, I played against him though. Yeah. So Carlos and I were teammates in 2015 after you were gone. And, uh, I had a great season, but I had like I have like a midseason slump every July, it seemed like. So in July, our whole team was playing horrible. Um, You know, Carlos was still playing every day. He was playing the outfield and he was kind of like hobbling around a little bit. I hit my slump. And at that point, like I needed I just like needed a little help. You know, when you're in a slump, you just like pray for like a ball to sneak through and just be a hit and for a blooper to go your way. And for a line drive as a pitcher, just to find a glove. So, I give up like a a line drive to one of uh the team's like i don't know the opposing team's lesser hitters, and he hits a, like it hits it hard, but it's like right at the center fielder, which is where Carlos is playing, and he just misplays it and it goes over his head untouched, which goes down the box scores a triple, and at that point, I was just like like another like th- like all I need is just like please just catch the ball like please just catch right. the ball and I was out on the field and i I don't think I like did anything with body language, but I definitely like looking back on it, probably threw him just like a little, little bit of a look. And I really didn't mean to, but I just like, it just like was a reaction. Yeah. I was Just like, come on. Like, I just need help. And, uh, and it just seemed like he dogged it after it. And, but I didn't, like I said, it wasn't like I did anything like, sh- like pat on my glove or like made like threw my arms up or did anything overt to like show him up. Cause I wouldn't do that. But after the game, I was talking to my coach. uh, Sorry, my my college pitching coach had come out to watch the game. And I was, you know, after the game, like hung around in the field, talking to him for about 10 minutes, and I was going to meet him afterwards for dinner. So I'm like the last guy into the clubhouse, and I get into my locker. I put my stuff in. I put my hat in the top, and then I turn around, and (laughs) there's Carlos (laughs) nose-to-nose with me, just absolutely furious. And he's like, you got something to say? You got something? And and I looked at him before – I was like trying to figure out all right, what words do I say right now to have him not hit me because I didn't know what I really didn't know why he was in my face because like I said I didn't show him up I, like I knew I felt some like animosity towards him because of that play but he and I were friends like it was fine but at that moment I'm like I don't know what I really did and I don't know why he's so mad he's like disproportionately mad and I was trying to figure out what do I say what do I say and then I don't remember what I said, but the first like utterance that left my mouth, he just shoved me super hard into my locker and then everyone kind of flooded him and grabbed him and then it was like a shouting match. But I only used his name because I, so I went to, uh, like we got broken up and our manager was yelling at us and then we, uh, I, I went and met my pitching coach for, for dinner. And then, so we were just sitting in this local bar right across from the street and uh and then carlos walks in like maybe like an hour 45 minutes later and i told my pigeon coach what happened and i'm like hey i see him over there like i'm gonna go talk to him like uh, you know thanks for coming so we just kind of cut a little bit short and i went out there and i talked to him and i said hey you know i don't know exactly what's going on um i'm sure i'm to blame whatever and we just talked about it and and what he revealed to me was that number one he felt like he always had my back that he really like wanted to see me succeed and that he was one of like my bigger cheerleaders and that he just felt really hurt that I like kind of flashed him an eye about it and then uh and I asked him like did I do like did I throw my hand like did I do anything he's like no he's like I could could just tell he's like I could just tell and then he (laughs) also explained baseball
1: body language
0: yeah but then he also explained that his daughter and this was the bigger piece his daughter um, was getting a surgery like a really serious surgery like his two or three-year-old and that You know, she I mean, it was like a life or death kind of surgery and she was she was fine, but he was really stressed out about it. So it's just like stuff like that, that you don't know what people are going through, you know, and I thought he dogged it after the ball. I thought he'd been kind of lazy in the outfield recently, but he was taking the field every day with like a lot of ankle pain. And like that's just part of being an everyday position player, as you know. And so there's just a lot of extenuating circumstances. You know, he you know, he, he was he was a big cheerleader of mine and he was taking the field hurt every day that's kind of why he wasn't running some balls out real hard and uh he was just like really torn up inside about his daughter that he just loved so much and so all those things combined were what made that situation what it was you know what i mean so just having the perspective and it was good that we talked because we hashed it out and you know we're we're good friends to this day that's why i use his name because you know it was a learning experience for both of us um and we were you know both wrong and but it's one of those things like you just never know what people are going through.
1: No, it's definitely not over the course of a baseball season.
0: All right. So speaking of kind of getting in altercations, tell me about Twitter. Tw- Twitter's the worst these days, right? I love Twitter. I, could, I can't get enough of Twitter.
1: Between, between politics and baseball talk, I love it.
0: What do you love more, talking about weighted balls and launch angle or Donald, Donald Trump?
1: oh it's like god what do you i don't even i i don't know if i can separate the two they're just so much fun i think talking i think talking about baseball to me on twitter is easier because i have more of a i would say a reputation than as opposed to me commenting on politics where you're basically just in a shouting match if someone doesn't agree with you um launch angle, weighted balls, uh, training, three sport athletes. I mean, name it. There is somebody on Twitter that you can pick a fight with at all hours of the night. It's great it's great entertainment.
0: Yeah, my go to has been just kind of blocking people because I just don't want to hear it. I just try to stay out of it. That's my my big thing. Um
1: Yeah, there's it's it's hard to stay out, you know, whether you I agree with you. There's there have been there are people I block that I haven't that I've never even communicated back and forth with, you know, between tweets or messages or anything. I just I can't stand to hear their opinion on baseball and their it's almost like a righteous opinion that that rubs me the wrong way the most time where it's, you know, this is the way it's done and you don't get it. And you know, you played you played for a long time and with a lot of really good players it's hard to be on Twitter, and you've got the Twitter experts telling you that you know they watch so much video, so they know exactly how it's how it's got to be done. You know, launch angle is the big, you know, the, the hot phrase right now. The the World Series isn't isn't helping either, as entertaining as it has been. There have been so many home runs, and I hear the announcer, you know, Smoltz talk about launch angle, and you got to mute it sometimes because it's. It's always, you know, since I was in high school, the best ball you could hit was a, a line drive or a, you know, a, a ball in the gap. Those balls would have always been in the air, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a, it's a hot button phrase, you know, launch angle and, uh, you know, exit velocity. These kids, I've got kids that come into the facility and test their exit velocities every day. And my first question is, well, did you guys, have you guys lifted to get any stronger? Like, what do you expect the number to be? It's not changing. You got It's like testing your miles per hour every day. You guys got to, you know, let's work towards an end goal here.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so hard to figure out because, you know, kids want results and they want to, Oh, I, I need to be recruited. So like, what's my number? What's, you know, what's my number? And then. Everyone acts like, oh, well, you're not going to get any looks if you don't do this. You're not going to get any looks. It's all about getting looks. So that, well, at some point, it has to be about being good at baseball. And a lot of the college coaches I've talked to, they don't want—they don't just come to see how fast a kid throws. I could tell them that over the phone. They come to see if a kid can pitch. They come to see if a kid can hit. And a lot of them don't stress exit velocity. Like, obviously, they need to see it if you're like a first baseman. But they'll see power when they see you hit, right? They don't need to necessarily know like what the number off the tee is.
1: Right. Couldn't agree with you more. And the exit velocity one is the one that really, it, when I see that argument, it's, that's one I want to jump in all the time, the exit velocity, because there's, uh, you know, a kid could have an exit velocity of 200 miles an hour, but if he can't make contact consistently, what good is he? He's useless. He's useless on the baseball field. You know, I played with a kid in Cape Cod League that threw ninety-eight to a hundred every pitch, lefty, and he only pitched a third of an inning because he hit four guys and he walked six. I mean, your velocity is great. He actually—he might be a bad example because he ended up. Did, I think he did get drafted late. Someone figured they could try and turn around him, turn him around as a project, but I don't think he ever made it out of rookie ball because uh, he just couldn't find the zone, but yeah it's those those numbers mean a lot if you're also a good baseball player you know if your exit velocity is 100 miles an hour and you're also the kid on the team who barrels everything yeah you're going to be really good but if you've got one or the other you know it's they kind of go hand in hand at some point
0: yeah and i think that's especially their, for college their argument which is like well yeah if you throw 9200 like you're gonna get your chances like you're gonna like he got his look he got his look right but at the same time most people are not going to throw 90 to 100 no matter how hard they try you know and so no matter what you have today you know this is what i talk to about with our pitchers Is like no matter how hard you throw even if you want to throw 100 that's great like that can be your goal that's fine but if you don't throw 100 today you might as well pitch with it whether you throw 74 or 84 or 94 you might as well pitch with it rather than just being a thrower but it becomes this obsession you know, and like the whole launch angle thing. I mean, I just, I see so many swings on Twitter and on Instagram that don't exist in real life. Like they don't exist in nature. Like where are these guys taking these uppercut swings in real, in, in real baseball? I don't see them. Have, I mean, did you see them?
1: Not to the, not to the point where some of these guys are teaching on I mean, some of these guys on Twitter are teaching swings that, you know, you can't play slow pitch softball with.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's that kind of goes back to what we talked about before with parents, and it's I, I wish more parents were were educated, or at least at least took a um, I would let me say a, I want to say a pessimistic view of who's teaching their kids until they until they get a better understanding for themselves, because I I've got some parents, you know, you do the one-on-one lessons and you do your team stuff where I could. I could roll out oranges and call them baseballs. And I would get some of these parents to be like, yeah, those are baseballs. You know, you just kind of, some of these hitting coaches will, will, you know, throw a throw a couple of key words at you and the kid will come home and, and you'll be locked in for the next three, four years at, you know, a hundred bucks an hour with this hitting coach. And by the time, you know, you get some of these kids, by the time they really need to perform, it's too late. You know, they, I get a lot of kids that have been going to hitting hitting coaches for three, four years, and now they're 16 years old. And I, sometimes I don't have the heart to tell them, look, I don't have enough time to fix your swing for you to be a college baseball player. And that's like a, I actually had that conversation with a kid, and that's a tough conversation to have to say, look, you, like, I don't, we don't have enough time. I could teach you everything you want to know about hitting, but you've got so many habits that are going to be really tough to break, and you've got six months to do it.
0: Yeah. We had so a really, a tight,
1: you know, it's a very tough thing to do.
0: Yeah. And we had a, I had a similar conversation this last summer with a, a really great kid, just a great person, hard worker, the kind of kid that you want on your team. He just couldn't hit. I mean, he, it, it wasn't like, you know, we need to work on his swing mechanics. It was just like, he couldn't hit. And I don't know what you do with that. You know, like at a certain point you just can't throw strikes. You just can't throw strikes. It's like a mentality right. thing, you know. Like you see all these different guys in the majors; they all have different mechanics. You're like, how does Chris Sale throw strikes as well as he does? Like his mechanics are wacky. Same with like Madison Bumgarner. There's so many guys with weird mechanics that you're like, how does this guy have impeccable command and just is so good? If you look at Clayton Kershaw's mechanics, if you were to break him down, if he, if he was like a 15 year old kid, you'd be like, who taught you this? He's the <laughs> best. He's the best pitcher of maybe the last hundred years like he's shaping up to be like he's incredible right you know so it's it's like not all about that there's so many intangibles and it's just it is like you said it's a heartbreaking conversation when you feel like someone has maybe run dry because I mean you played at a high level and you had all these dreams and you wouldn't have wanted somebody to tell you like hey like you're not going to make it but at some point that's a realistic conversation it's where do you want to allocate your time and your effort I don't know it's hard
1: it's hard. And then you get, like you said, you got the kids that say, I want to throw hundred miles an hour. And sometimes you backtrack to, you know, okay, let's, you kind of, you play into that. Whereas some of these kids, you know, they tell me they want to run six, five sixties and that, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to have speed as a tool that like helped me stand out. And I said, and you know, I take a step back cause I know a kid that's running a seven, eight now is not getting down to six, five. I know that but then you tailor it back and say, okay, your goal is to run a six, five. Well, what are we doing to achieve that goal? You know, are you sprinting every day? Are you working out your legs? Are you, are you looking at videotape of uh, some of the fastest runners and trying to see, you know, what makes them fast and what makes them good off the block? So you kind of throw it, I kind of try and throw it back into the, uh, back into their, you know, the ball back in their court and the kids, you know, like you said, the kids that throw, want to throw a hundred miles an hour. Well, are you playing long toss? You know, are you doing the thing, the band work, the things we talk about that that we both agree will make you throw harder? And it's sometimes it's you know to get that light bulb to turn on for some of these kids. It's you know, no, your exit velocity is not changing if all you're doing is hitting off the tee. Like you need to get stronger. Some of these things go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it, it kind of goes back to, like, the: do you want to throw harder or do you need to? You know, do you want to play college baseball or do you need to? Do you want right. to? Because, like, the guys that are really, like, obsessed with their craft, they find ways to do things. Like, they don't. Like you said, there's so many ways to get better at sprinting that if you run a 6'9", like, you're pretty fast. If you're a high school kid and you already run a 6'9", and you haven't done, like, tons and tons of training to get there, you can almost... Guaranteed, probably could do a six six or six five because there's so many things you could do. If you just think of like the typical day in a life of like a Division one sprinter, all the sprinting technique drills they do, all the just like there's so much of it. Like they make it; it's their whole sport is just sprinting 100 yards or whatever. Um, yep, exactly. There's so many little things to make you more efficient. Where you're only shaving off, you know, if you're on a six nine. That's 690 milliseconds you're shaving off eight percent seven percent which is a lot when you're in like the olympic level but that's not that much when you're a pretty untrained like high school kid you know it's uh you know and just with pitching velocity or exit velocity like all that stuff you just get a little more efficient uh even with what you already have and you can make some gains but like you said most kids don't lift enough like they're not anywhere close to like the work ethic they need and and like the body that they need to to catch up to some of these like division one kids i don't think most people realize what a division one athlete looks like i mean they're different than everyone else
1: they're different and then you get the kids that want to you know they say they want to play professional baseball and that's uh you know not even to pat y- yourself and myself on the back but it's a it's a different mindset of training it's a different you know i had to tell the kids I try not to use myself as, as an example whenever I talk to the kids, but we have some uh, current professionals that work, you know, do some of the training and some of the practices with us, and I kind of use those guys. And I said, Look, like we're here practicing for two hours. I said, You know, Mike has been worked out this morning, did all his training, hit for two hours, and now he's here talking about baseball. I said, How many of you guys are doing that? And you try and relate it to, you know, someone that they see every day. and so they don't understand. They think, you know, the, it's almost like the casual lifter, the three days a week for 45 minutes is going to get you in shape. Or it's, no, if you really want to change how your body looks and completely overhaul what you are as a person, it's, it's got to be a,
0: a lifestyle change. Yeah, like when you think about Bryce Harper, like obviously a natural talent, but that kid like hit relentlessly as a high schooler, right? Like he was constantly, like he was all baseball all the time. and And still yeah yeah so it wasn't just that he was more talented than everyone else which he was but that's just how you become a superstar like when you have more talent plus you have the work ethic and the drive and like the obsession you know to to really be good just uh there's a lot of factors um so speaking of which what did what did bobby stevens do to be one of the few white shortstops in baseball and i want to ask you though i say it that way because why do you feel like there's more... Why do you feel like Dominicans are so much better at infield than than American guys? And that's sort of me just so sort I of Maybe a little conjecture, but most shortstops in major leagues are not of American blood anymore.
1: Yeah, I would... Well...
0: So as a middle infielder, what's your perspective on that?
1: Oh, man. I would... S- I would say I was lucky enough growing up to not have coaches. Is that, that's, that's going to sound, that sounds crazy. Right. But if you, if you ever talk to a, a Latin baseball player or, or, you know, one of these kids that comes, that uh, gets off the Island, it's kind of a phrase we use and up here and in their professional baseball, get off the kid, they got off the Island, right. The Dominicans got off the Island, uh, I feel like the coaching they had wasn't, you know, right foot, left foot, field the ball. It was, let's go out there and you got to find your own style because as you watch some of these guys, you know, I think they watch, I think they learned by watching. I think they learned by doing. And I think a lot of American players, especially now learn by listening and learn by being told. And, I think I was lucky enough to where you know I learned how to play infield mainly from my dad hitting me ground balls. And uh you know, I think I th- you know, athleticism comes into play too. You get you do a lot of these Latin guys are uh you know, quick, you well, know, solid athletes and maybe there's you know, maybe maybe there's American guys of the same caliber, but you know, Chris Taylor comes to mind watching the Watching the uh, World Series now, and how versatile he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an athletic kid. You know, he's the the American shortstops I can I can think of in the big leagues. Uh, your um Paul DeJong. I'm actually drawing a blank on some of these guys. Uh, Giant the Giants' shortstop Brandon Crawford. You know, super athletic guys, and I just you know these. I think these. Latin kids were allowed, not only do they only play baseball pretty much, but they're allowed to develop their own style. They're allowed to be athletic. You know, I, I always think about a story about David Ortiz where when he was with the Twins, guy couldn't, guy couldn't hit the ball out of the infield. And then he gets to the Red Sox and is allowed to be, you know, the player he was, you know, free, free swing growing up and he becomes a Hall of Fame, uh, you know, Hall of Fame baseball player. And I just think that the kids at a very young age here are taught one way, and this is the way you do it. And it's very, I would—I call it vanilla. It's a very vanilla way to play infield. Yeah. And the best shortstops I ever played with and the best guys I saw had, even if, you're, even if you're of the mindset of you don't like the bat flips and the flare and the swagger or whatever word you want to use, there's still a there's still that, that, you know, that essence of, you know, creative when you play infield and when you play, especially when you play shortstop, I mean, arguably the, the best athlete on the field is defensively um, catcher might be the most important position on the field, but, you know, you, there's a reason for so long guys that played shortstop could hit two ten in the big leagues because it's almost like a, you have to have somebody there that can catch and throw the ball across the infield and command an infield. And I think these Latin guys are just being brought up and they're not being told that they're, you know, they're second baseman or their third baseman or first baseman or right fielders when they're seven years old, they're, they're allowed to go out there and just, you know, have fun and learn and develop their own style. And so maybe I, I want to say, at least from what we do up here with my teams, it's try not to overcoach, you know, give a little bit of guidance, but try and let a kid find his way, especially the kids I kind of identify as potential shortstops.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, and the other thing about just, I guess, growing up in the Dominican, obviously, which neither of us did, but there there's so much competition, right? So it's not just the fact that they're taking ground balls all day, you know, and that they're, just consumed by being better at baseball they're also pushed by everyone else they're trying to outcompete everyone around them so it's not okay to like boot crown balls you know like they're in a culture where field it like find a way to field it it doesn't matter if it hits a rock or if it's you're on the crappiest bumpiest field like field it you know
1: yeah e- you know what e- i would almost say economics plays one of the biggest factors and i could i can almost relate it to, to kids up here i mean i've got I've got kids from a you know uh, I would say a, a poor part of the city or a, a, a less affluent area of Chicago and you could just see it these kids like they're the drive they have to to be better and to do better and to to have better. And the, you know some of the kids that are kind of that grew up, not all kids, but the kids that grew up you know well to do or you know they never you never hurt or want for anything the the drive to be better isn't as high and it's not as it doesn't come through I mean there's you've got your facility uh, I know I open my facility to the to my high school kids as they can come and go as they please and I'm always there and I see the four or five kids that show up every day and they stay and that you know I would say the one the one thing they all have in common is you know their background that they don't come from the they come from humble means they come from you know blue collar families and these kids work and you get a whole island of kids like that you're you're making for some pretty competitive baseball it's starting you know it's showing worldwide now world baseball classic major league baseball i mean these guys are they're good baseball players and they want it you know they They wanna get off the island. I said that phrase get off the island. They that's their that's their way of making a better life for themselves. And you know, I know baseball isn't life, but for some people it you know, even in these even in the States, these kids that don't have much growing up, I mean going to going to college, athletics sometimes is the only way to do it.
0: Yeah, no I'm with you. I think I think everything you said just spot on. Well Bobo, any closing thoughts for our audience?
1: uh closing thoughts if you're not listening to this podcast <laughs> every time it comes out you're doing yourself a disservice i know i listen to it so yeah I,
0: nice I nice plug understand. yeah
1: yeah, is, yeah i thought it was i think it's a good plug and it's it's true you get a lot of good guests i mean i heard sean Tuffle, i haven't heard his voice in a long time
0: tuffy he's the man
1: it's good dude, good uh, dude. it's it's fun to hear especially knowing you personally it's fun to hear some of the guys you bring on that uh you used to play with but yeah i, I gotta, mean, get, if, I gotta get
0: dave on this thing
1: Oh, Dave yeah, I'm sure he'll do it for sure.
0: Yeah, we will have to make a trip up to Chicago, do one all together or something. That would that would make for some good stories. Old Shy Town. Well, Bobby, you want to plug your uh, your academy? Give somewhere people can follow up with you. Twitter, anything? Yeah,
1: else? Uh, Twitter uh, Stevie Bobbins, little play on words of my name. <laughs> um, I'm at gowindycitybaseball.com. Uh, Windy City Baseball on Twitter, Facebook. Instagram, you can follow those good social media stuff. I'm not as good as uh, as most on the social media, but if you follow my Twitter, I'll uh, I'll go back and forth with you every once in a while.
0: Yeah, just don't just don't ask him about launch angle, because you know oh, you're gonna get his Never. All right, well, Bob, thanks for uh, thanks so much for being on the show, and uh, we'll catch everyone else next week on Dear Baseball Gods. Thank you.